City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, producing. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These Working in the Theatre Seminars bring you a unique behind-the-scenes look from the perspective of performers, producers, playwrights, directors, designers, and agents. The seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The American Theatre Wing, as many of you know, is founder of the theatre's highest honor, the Tony Award. This is an honor that is bestowed not just for the longest run or for the best reviews, but for the achievement of excellence in the theater, for recognizing that excellence in the craft of theater. Antoinette Perry was a wonderful woman. She was a producer, she was a director, and she was a playwright. And it is in her honor that this award has been founded. We're a year-round organization, the American Theater Wing, and year-round our programs go out to the community. We have a hospital program, which brings live theater to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. We have a program for children in their schools, Saturday Theater for Children. And so at a youngest age, they know what theater is all about on Saturday mornings. And our program, Introduction to Broadway, is indeed a wonderful program. Thousands of children have come to see their first big Broadway show. They have never been on Broadway, and they have never seen a Broadway show. We're able to do this through the cooperation of the Board of Education, the generosity of the theater producers, and the children's desire to see a Broadway show. They pay a very small amount of money, but it is an amount of money, so that they make that commitment to see a show. We think that's a very important part of the program. And so far, we have over 36 or 37,000 children that have come in just three seasons to see their shows. They meet with the cast afterwards and they ask questions about how it is and what they can do and, and what, what, who turns on the lights and all the nitty-gritty things that make up the Broadway show. But it inspires them to know more about the theater. And we hope that they are then going to be the audience of the future. These seminars, which are an outgrowth of the Wings School, focus on the playwright, the performer, the director, the agent, uh, the guilds, and the unions. And every one of the seminars that the Wing has been bringing to you shows you another part of the working in the theater progress. Today's seminar is on the production. It's on a marvelous production called Beauty and the Beast, which is now playing at the Palace Theater. And the producers are here, and the staff of the production are here, in order to explain how this show was brought 
to you to Broadway. It's a wonderful, wonderful show, and it's a part of our history of theater. And so before we go any further, I'm going to have Brendan Gill, who is an um, author, a director, and a legendary figure in the New Yorker magazine, and a member of the board of directors of the American Theater Wing, George White, who is a director and president of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut. They will co-moderate, and from them will come how everyone can be a producer of a successful Broadway show. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Not to speak uh, for George, but to speak for myself, I regard myself as an ideal moderator of this program because I know absolutely nothing about the business side of producing <laughs> the theater. I intend to learn a great deal, as Isabel has promised us. Um, to identify uh, the names, if not the weights of all the players, on the farthest right is uh, Chris Bono, who is press representative uh, for the Beauty and the Beast, and uh, who apparently in his teens uh, founded the uh, firm of Bono Brian Brown in 1991. Those three bees are the occasion for the famous saying, busy as bees. Uh, among uh, Chris's current clients are Angel in America, Angels in America, Beauty and the Beast, and the Who's Tommy. Next to Chris is Jeremiah Harris, the production supervisor of Beauty and the Beast, who has many Broadway credits to his name, including the Starlight Express Tour and M. Butterfly. And to my immediate right is Robert McTire, currently vice president of Disney Attractions Productions, and before joining Disney in 1982, he was with the Niederlander Organization here in New York. George? Thank you, Brendan. Um, since we're talking about players, I'll start by getting the puck on the ice with uh, going over to uh, Marjorie Singer, uh, who is currently promoting Disney's Beauty and the Beast, who is the former marketing director of Madison Square Garden, where the illusion comes from, um, as well as the director of public relations at the oh, 1980 Winter Olympics. And on her immediate right is Michael David, who, along with uh, Edward Strong and Sherman Warner, is part of the Dodgers Productions, uh, currently producing Beauty and the Beast, as well as Guys and Dolls and The Who's Tommy, all of which are on Broadway. And to my immediate left is Don France, who is the associate producer of Beauty and the Beast, and for four years a veteran of Walt Disney World, um, after serving on the faculty of UCLA. I want to get into that a little bit later, too. So, uh, Brendan, back the, to you. The, uh, everything we hear about a musical, and especially a, an exceptionally spectacular uh, musical, is that it takes so long to get it uh, into being, to, 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 to bring it to the point of actual, actually arriving on Broadway. So I think the most interesting question to ask right off the bat from you, uh, Robert, is how long ago did the notion that this was going to be made come into existence in the Disney organization? Well, I think you could go all the way back to when the film was uh, being made uh, by... Uh, the Disney team and by Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I'm, I'm sure that it was discussed at that point. But most recently, in 1992, is when we started working on the project heavily, when they turned us on, uh, and uh, so we've been working on it straight through all that time. But they were thinking already when they were making the movie that it was that it could be done. In, in, uh, well, I'm sorry, the notion, the notion came up in the sense that. Uh, 
Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, of course, came from the theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they did with our animation group was so theatrical in its treatment and its development that it was quite obvious to people, even before the film was released, that there was a lot of potential here. But the actual decision didn't come until 1992. But still, is it a unique event to have done this from film to musical? Well, I... I or have there, there been other... I can't think... There have been many, many productions that have, have done that. I, 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 certainly, it's unique for our company, for the Walt mm -hmm. Disney Company, to do it. Uh, and uh, I, don't, I can't think of any animation that film that was... Yeah changed into a live production. Picking up on that a moment, because uh, I can understand why you might have trouble doing The Little Mermaid, um, <laughs> <laughs> unless you had the old Hippodrome Although with the we, underwater we've, we've stuff. We've talked about it. All right. But what, and also, what about uh, but, uh, Aladdin? I mean, is that going <coughs> the same way? That has, I mean, it's the same sort of creative team, I believe, or many of the same people, players, were in Aladdin. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman uh, mm -hmm. did uh, the music and lyrics for that, and then Tim Rice, of course who came into Beauty and the Beast, also did some uh, supplemental lyrics uh, for Aladdin. Uh, we've talked about what we might do next uh, with Michael uh, Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. We've talked about Aladdin. We've talked about Little Mermaid. We've talked about Mary Poppins. We haven't decided yet what we're going to do. But obviously, Little Mermaid is difficult because of the water sequences. <laughs> Aladdin is, is difficult because of all the illusions and because of uh, uh, Robin Williams did such a magnificent job in the film. We haven't decided yet. But the, in terms of commerce nowadays, to be worldwide is the great source of revenue, is it not? To have things on film, things that can go all over the world all sure, the time. First. So this represents a step backward to, 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 into the legitimate theater where how would you calculate the amount of revenue? You hope then that this will run like cats or something for 8, 10, 15 years? Well, that would, that would be the dream. Yeah, but that, that must happen. be part of the projection in the budget. Otherwise, <coughs> how do you do it? Well, uh, from a business standpoint, obviously, we hope that we will recoup our investment from our New York production. Uh, and so our projections are made on that. But of course, what you hope with any of these business situations is that you have spin-off productions, that you can take it out on the road, that you can take it to London, that you can take it to Japan, mm -hmm. and it remains to be seen. But in terms of the actual decision to do Beauty and the Beast here on Broadway, that decision was made discreetly uh, for Broadway, mm -hmm. for the theater here. Has there been an announced figure about the budget of this, what this show cost as compared yeah, to... I was going to ask if Don knew that be as the producer. Mm -hmm. Maybe he would okay. Who wants to own up? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the budget established at 11.9 mm -hmm. million. Million. <laughs> <laughs> right, I just thought that. <laughs> but that doesn't sound very extravagant, considering how elaborate the production is. Uh, what is the budget? 11.9 million. Sure. And I guess Jerry, you have history with some of the Andrew Lloyd Webber or really useful productions, Ken McIntosh How does that break down, the 11.9, in a sense, what, in, in, in big blocks, sets, actors? How does, would you... Illuminate that for us. Well, in broad use terms, something out of the show. Uh, the physical production is roughly sixty percent of that budget. In broad terms, uh, off the top of my head, I don't have the figures. No, but all right. So, but six and a half million for sets, roughly. So no, sets, costumes, sets, sets, costumes, lighting, illusions, uh, trucking, labor—all the things that go into making the physical production happen. Well, didn't, for example, Crazy for You, didn't that cost six or seven million to bring uh, to Broadway? Yeah. I think yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Uh, 11 doesn't sound out of line at all to me. I'm, I'm amazed that you were able to do that well. I congratulate you as a non-businessman on your business. <laughs> uh, so then well, well, the, would, this show is contemporary with the other large musicals. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it parallels the production course yeah. of what it takes to put a show like this together. And then with, with an ordinary musical like Crazy for You, I think it took, what, a year or so to recoup there? <coughs> That's what I think they're just about reaching that point. And that was a one-man uh, adventure on the part of Roger Horshaw. He just did it with his own money, with his own purse. But he happened to have a very big purse. Uh, so, so I don't know how many companies, how many people are on the road with that, whether there were three or four. Or what, do you have any idea about that, Chris? No, actually, I don't. My, uh, you know, how many companies? Have, there's one, there's one company up. There's one company on the road. Right. There's a company in Toronto and, uh, and Japan. And London. Japan and London. Now, what will happen to the showboat? Is that also going to be? A, isn't that also? A I you were the major investor in showboat. I, well, I am, but keep it quiet. <laughs> Surely that's up there too is a very expensive. Uh, so we understand. Yeah. But well, you you could also make the because you're a producer of of three uh, hits on Broadway now with Beauty and the Beast. How does well, I have to establish, George, very clearly that I really work for Disney in this regard. The Dodgers, as much as they would like to be <coughs> the <laughs> the producers of Beauty and the Beast um, are, are basically general managers of Beauty and the Beast. So okay. we're, we're well, then a general you, manager. Let's get right down to that now. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Uh, what? Is, yeah. Do you want to explain the, the general manager for the? For what is your role viewers? here, Michael? Uh, as general um, manager. I suppose that that we're responsible once they have the idea and put the team together, or at least the 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 the, 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 the principal members of the team and and um, uh, determined to do this. We're one of the few people brought in subsequently to work with them to manage and coordinate the actual doing of their idea. Um, and in this case, it was an idea that, that found its way from, from the Disneys to Houston and then to New York. And so what basically, like Jerry and like bring? Chris, basically we were involved um, um, to basically help them get the idea off the page, or in this case, off the screen. What, what and do you coordinate? Stage. What do you bring in? Um, it's everything from it's everything from whatever you can write down, and Disney certainly writes a lot of things down. So it, it's, <laughs> it's uh, <clears throat> everything from coordinating all the paper that moves around, with everything from numbers to words on it, to to to, to a fairly sizable staff of people from the creative teams to to the folks who evening. sell tickets to the to, to ushers, to designers, to whatever. And I mean, Jerry has his own territory where he sort of deals with people behind the curtain line, and I suppose. Chris and, and our office deals with what happens in front of the curtain line again on behalf of uh, Disney. Uh, who, who, for instance, um, hires uh, Marjorie and Chris? Disney. Disney does. Not the general manager does not. It, it, could, have, it could have been done either way. Let, maybe, maybe I should jump <coughs> in a little bit and Please. explain that the Walt Disney Company um, has a great deal of experience in, in many fields, but. We are not the experts in legitimate theater, even though some of us have, you know, a fair amount, spent a fair amount of time in the theater. Uh, we thought it was very important to go out and hire experts uh, to supplement our, our team, to supplement uh, our team with people who know Broadway, who know the theater, who are the best in their fields. And, and that's how some of these people came to work with us, because uh, we, we needed their advice, and they've been... Uh, incredibly helpful. So somebody like Michael uh, has helped us in almost every area of the production. 
<clears throat> because Michael, as you mentioned earlier, is not, not just a general manager for us, but it's a producer of quite a few shows. And uh, mm -hmm. so his experience has been invaluable. And uh, they've helped us in every aspect of the program. So they made, um, the Dodgers made the recommendation to you? Or and, and, and many things. In fact, uh, Mar Marjorie, for example, uh, came to us uh, through Michael, Michael's office. He recommended her. He recommended Chris, Jer Jerry Harris. So we found on our own, fortunately. And, uh, when did so Marjorie come on? At what point? Uh, about six count? months prior to the production coming to Broadway. Mm -hmm. And is that the usual arrangement about that? You're not necessary before that, roughly that period. Because everybody has to get dovetailed in. Very, very, very let me say, let me say on Marjorie's behalf that I mean I think she's necessary way before six months. The fact mm -hmm. is, and that has nothing to do with Disney and when they when, when they hired her. I mean I think what Disney did with Marjorie is something that a lot of shows don't do at all. We mm -hmm. try and do, and I know some others do, but, mm -hmm. but um, um, time is indeed your money in this business. So the sooner one's on, the, the, the and Chris, the when do you come into the picture? Also, at the very beginning, I've been on this for about a year now. I mean, involved. Um, mm -hmm. We had a, an interesting situation. We went down to Houston to work <coughs> on the show for seven weeks uh, of previews in Houston around Christmas time, which was an invaluable uh, lesson uh, experience for all of us for a lot of reasons. I mean, the show changed a lot during this that period. But also the work that, that Marge and I and the, the marketing team from Disney, we had a great time to sort of get our stuff in place. Uh, the, the press things that I needed to do, we, how we were going to sell the show, how we were going to present the show, the way it was going to look. We uh, made decisions about which photographs we wanted to use. I mean, there was a time when we were talking very early on that we were never going to show people pictures of the beast, which we sort of figured out later on is you can't have a title <laughs> Judy and the Beast and not show him what he looks like. So that went away very quickly. And then we thought, oh, well, we're not going to show anybody what the objects look like. Well, when we saw how great they were and how well they photographed and how much people wanted to see them, we changed our minds again. And these kinds of mistakes and changes and <coughs> rethinking of things and sharpening of our skills, we got to do in Houston. We got to sort of try out without everybody sort of watching us. We didn't have critics fly into Houston, as some people do. Um, uh, the showboat production flew critics to Toronto to review it ahead of time. We deliberately made that decision not to do that. And we got to do our work without a lot of people standing over and looking over our shoulders, which is really important. Well, picking up on that, too, I, I, I happen to be a great fan, and I, I, and I know I'm sorry that our cameras can't pick it up, of the logo of which uh, uh, Bob is, is, is wearing uh, the, the watch of the logo. <laughs> but I'm sorry, you can't see it. But it's, it's a great logo. I love that logo. Uh, who, how did you find that? Who did it? Was it... Was it you, Chris? Was it Marjorie? Uh, how did, who did it? When did you tell us a little bit about the process of coming up with that? Because it's very, very special. It, it's great. I mean, it's, it's it's the work of the terrific artists at Disney who actually put it together. But over it a, was a Disney artist. Yes, not and a, <coughs> over and it was a very early Saturday morning meeting where we all looked at some things. We had something in Houston that was very close to the movie, and that's I think that's really important to, for us to talk about for a second. Is that we what we didn't want to do was say this is the movie on stage. It's, it's very different. I mean, there are obviously parts of the movie there, and it mm -hmm. takes its basis from the movie, but we went beyond that. And we didn't want people to think that, oh, there's a movie playing at the palace, and we're asking to pay uh, legitimate theater ticket prices. So we wanted something different. And uh, on a Saturday morning, we saw some artwork, and it was actually two pieces of art that we sort of asked them to put together. What were they? Um, it was, the, it was the silhouette, which was, was there. Uh, yeah. Michael was there, Marjorie was there, well, you, yeah, you were there, and then some of the marketing people and Bob and Don and, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was there. Um, and it was the, the silhouette of the beast, uh, 
And then the rose was a separate element, I think, with the petal falling. And we said, why not put them together? And they liked the idea, and they came back in what they presented. And it's, it's terrific. I mean, it's... Yeah, it was pivotal in, in getting across to the audience the perception and the expectation of the show. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pivotal. And Houston was the tryout for the show, and it was also kind of the tryout for the marketing. And when in Houston, the logo that was close to the film ran in the papers, we saw the expectation was really more the movie and not, and not the show. And by that time, the show had taken on its own life. The logo helped reflect that life. And it's a more masculine image. It's, it's a more theatrical, dramatic image. I, I would think, and I, I, is it, Marjorie, is it your job uh, particularly to clarify, I mean, it, it seems simplistic, I know, but to clarify for the public, and I'm talking about both nationwide and worldwide, that th it's like Superman the movie. This is, this is not Beauty and the Beast the movie. I mean, is, is that one of your jobs, or is it, Chris, or is it both? I mean, to, to really focus on the fact that this is a legitimate that what they're going to do is they're going to see something that is live. It's really all of our jobs through the advertising that we do, through the promotional campaigns, through all of the public relations activities. Um, it's our job to communicate what the show is and how on do you Broadway. Do that? Well, starting with well, we started with, with what it isn't. I mean, they, part of well, what how do we separate this? <coughs> um, public relations. Yeah, I handle publicity. All the pu publicity and public relations. Right. Basically, everything that you advertising is not represented right. here, right. but. That's right. uh, who, who does your advertising? Um, it's, it's done. In -house. We, we have an in-house yeah. people doing it, but we all contribute. I mean, you can't do advertising. You can't do any of these things without us all talking to each other. And then marketing goes to you. Yes, and promotion. And, then you, uh, and we all work together. Now, in, 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 in preparing for the arrival in New York City, 2010 uh, was an accident of history, which is the Disney moving into 42nd Street. Did that muddy the waters? Did that get people confused? It got me a little confused. I wasn't sure what was happening. Uh, what, what Disney was going to be doing on 42nd Street, or didn't that affect you at all? It, it affected us. Certainly, it did. I mean, it, but it was. I think it affected us in a in a good way. Yes, um, it's in a it, great affirmative yeah, thing. Yeah, it was. Amazing, it was. It was saying we're not only coming to do one show, but we're coming in to be part of this community, and we're going to be part of the real estate. We're going to be part of the community in, in a very real way, and it was actually very helpful. You're Let me in go back one step. We miss casting. Where did the casting take place? Here in New York. In New York. Mm -hmm. So who came through? Who did? Who, who did the casting? Who was the casting director? Uh, Jane Binder. Mm -hmm. Who did a fabulous job. Who worked with uh, worked with our director and uh, Michael. Were you involved in that? Not not to the not to the not in the day to day casting. An awful lot of people came in for callbacks, but but. Uh, it's interesting that for, I think Miss Egan is is, is or, or or a couple of them are, are out of Disney's camp though, uh, weren't they? Or had some experience either in one or another. Of uh, yeah, Susan has done some uh, television things for Disney. Yeah, several people have done. Things for our studio. She uh, lives in but, Orange but that, County. Yeah, she, long, she, long, she came from Long Beach, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but that really was coincidental. Uh, we really found these actors in New York. Uh, we did get some people from Canada, uh, but we found the actors in New York, and uh, we're very lucky to have such talented people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. On, on many of our seminars, we hear that uh, theater performers are working in the theater, or theater producers, or theater directors working in the theater. And then they go to television or movies to make some money. And here we have television and movies, in a sense, coming to New York. Are you coming here to make money? Is, do you intend? <laughs> well, we hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. But what's, what was the main reason for coming to Broadway? Well, we, the company just felt it was time. The idea 
of doing theater has been one that's been kicked around in the Walt Disney Company for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were people like, like myself, many people like myself in the company who had a theatrical background who wanted the company to do it. We'd always walked away from it as not our main business. But uh, as our company has grown and as Michael Eisner has looked for new avenues for the company to uh, grow into, uh, this became an obvious opportunity, mm -hmm. and uh, based on the response to the film, the idea came up to do Beauty and the Beast, and so we just decided to take the plunge with it. Now, another problem with Beauty and the Beast, which wouldn't be in an ordinary musical here in New York, is to, that you have two audiences. You have, uh, presumably, you have a lot of children at the matinees, and you, would, and, and you have to lure adults into coming at night, because a lot of people, grown people, wouldn't think that's the... That's the that's the musical for me. So how did, how did you deal with that? You knew that from the beginning. So when you got one of those Saturday morning meetings, what happened? What did you well, decide? We're, we're, it's, it's not a children's show. It's a, it's a Broadway musical. It's a great date musical. Um, it's a love story. It's a great love story. And uh, there speaks the press representative. Uh, yeah, right. I can't do anything uh, I say. Enough said. Now answer, answer the question. <laughs> um, it's been a, it's something we work we work about, and we don't we don't want to say this is a children's show because it's not that. Um, uh, but adult audiences can. I mean, we, you know, we do shows at eight o'clock. You know, we have how many shows a week that are not matinees? We have five that are not matinees. So, uh, and if you come to the theater on the on a weeknight, I think I think. Um, audiences are love to bring a child with them so they can experience it with a child. But it's not a show that we say is a children's show. Yeah. And the best thing that I've been saying and in defense of, of this being a show just for kids is that if this gets children, kids involved in the theater, and if they say, I love that, I want to do more of that, what else can I see, then we've won the battle. Yeah. And, I, I felt that when I, when I saw it. I thought, I agree with you, it's not a, a children's show. But all of the best theater for children are not specifically on my head geared for children, but I, I saw a lot of kids there, but I thought this is a great way to introduce them to live theater. Mm -hmm. What a way to turn them on. Uh, I, uh, and I pick up that. What I wanted to ask Jeremy something too, because I saw, uh, when I saw the show, it is a logistical, it seemed to me like a logistical nightmare. <laughs> uh, from a, I, I was an old stage manager, and I thought, mm -hmm. my lord, what, what a job. And could you tell us a little bit, because I think we're really into the, in these, these seminars, working in the theater, is tell us a little bit about, one, the transfer, just the nuts and bolts of getting the show from Houston to Broadway. <laughs> uh, talk about load-in, lights, all of that stuff is a very, very complex and important aspect of it. So would you address right. that a little bit, what you have to do? And well, you have to start it takes. It took... Uh, we closed in Houston January 10th. We started previewing here March 9th. We started in the theater January 3rd, though, in the Palace Theater January 3rd. So we had roughly two months and one week. What did you have to do in the theater? Well, we don't have enough time here to... <laughs> <laughs> you don't have two to, or three weeks to describe it. But uh, we made a lot of facility modifications in order to house the show. The big challenge with this show was that the show is so large, and we go to so many different scenes. Uh, and the show, uh, uh, from the scenic level or the physical production side, had to compete uh, with the other monster musicals that are out there. So the problem with the palace, it's inordinately small backstage. 
Is it? I'd forgotten that. Very, very small. Uh, off the top of my head, it's only 28 feet deep. <coughs> so a great deal of planning went into we, we put in additional fly floors. We put a tremendous amount of uh, structural steel in the grid, which is the structure that holds all the flying scenery, uh, in order to support the additional weight we were going to put there. As the scenes go on and off the stage, they immediately go off into the wings and are then flown up into the air so that the next scene can be lowered in and put down <coughs> into the tracks. Uh, the show moves very, very uh, smoothly, and the reason for that is that we are running everything from our lighting systems to our sound systems to our scenic motion control via computers. So as the stage manager gives a cue, he might be enabling 60 or 70 pieces to be moved in one command or two commands uh, via That's a technician young. downstairs. So the real thing about doing moving the show is it's all a matter of logistics. It moved in roughly 28 trailers from Houston to whatever, and then scheduling the process. Because you don't have any space, things have to come in in a precision and precise manner where X comes in and you work on X and you must allocate your time proportionally and, and see that you How can meet the How different is that in, in working with the New York stage hands here than it would be with the studio or in Houston? Uh, well, I think it's, there's quite a bit of difference. We, we had a great, great crew in Houston and they were very helpful. But there's no question that the New York technicians are more experienced in, in this kind of production and just generally what, what we're doing. I'm, I'm sure you would agree with that, Jerry. Yeah. I mean, Michael, we, you would have the, how many stagehands are, well, maybe you both know, how many stagehands are involved? It's Jerry's in? turf, plenty. There's, there's uh, 34 total stagehands on the show. Mm -hmm. 13 or 14 which work directly for the Disney company and 20 of what we call local. Can you give us a comparison between that? <coughs> I mean, are there any other or other shows that show that you have, Michael, of the amount of, of backstage? Well, Tommy, how many, for instance, on Tommy? It's more than Tommy and it's more than Guys and Dolls. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not twice as many. Yeah. One of the one, things that's, ha that's happened it's, in the, it's in, in the one in, less than Phantom. It's <coughs> one less than Phantom. I think it's one or two less than the Saigon. Mm -hmm. Imagine having something less than Phantom and not a Phantom. It's a very difficult time. <laughs> 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 Uh, we're always being accused of having yeah. phantoms yeah. people backstage anyway. Um, <laughs> some, it, some of the it, other fun facts, what, 1,400 lighting instruments? Mm -hmm. Fun facts. 170-some motors. 1,400. There's lights. actually 100, if you count everything, there's over 100 uh, automated scenic effects. There's 64 Verilites, which is an automated uh, lighting instrument. We have the most, I don't want to use the word complicated, but the most uh, elaborate sound system that the live theater is yet to see. Uh, it in and of itself is filled with three or four computers and we reproduce the sound effects in the show digitally. We pre-mix the orchestra in the basement and then we send it up to the orchestra mix in the house so that depending upon how the musicians are feeling one night we can balance it before it gets out to the audience. Uh, That's spooky. Talk it about is. I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were, with the actors group, uh, uh, 
one of a, one of the actors this year, this spring, in our seminar was uh, Harry Abraham, who was in Angels in America taking the Roy Cohn role. And he was saying that the only objection he has to what is happening in the theater with the wonderful speed with which scenes change and all the rest of it, the degree to which it's all becoming more movieistical than it ever right. was before, uh, is the degree to which he becomes a prisoner, uh, much more a prisoner of, of the computers that are, that, that are setting all those things than he, that, than he used to be. And he says, as an old-time actor, he feels a certain resentment to the degree to which uh, live theater is less live and if he's being made a prisoner of all that. Now, you have the most complicated, <coughs> you don't want to use that word, uh, the most elaborate uh, example of that that's ever been, and the notion of, of, of even altering the quality of tone of an orchestra like that is, uh, strikes me as absolutely uncanny. And somebody might be skeptical of all this uh, high-tech. Uh, he was. Uh, the actors are, in many cases, very skeptical of it. Young actors like... Susan Egan and, and, and Burke Moses will never know anything else, so they won't right. be skeptical. <laughs> but the other people well, who are accommodating to it are. I mean, the world is evolving, the theater is evolving. and uh, I think that's the answer to it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one, one of the reasons that our sound system answer, is... Not, a, uh, <laughs> not something you yeah. consent to, perhaps. One of the reasons the sound system is so um, elaborate is because the director, along with Alan Menken, wanted to preserve a certain honesty in the music, and wanted not to go to pre-recorded tracks right. which uh, support some of the Broadway shows. So that, they wanted it to be very, very live, which necessitated all of a sudden now 31 microphones <coughs> on every member of the chorus. Well, also, right. if you look at the keep uh, it live. orchestrations of the show, we have a very acoustic orchestra. Yes, we do have synthesizers mm -hmm. in the pit, but we have... Uh, a large string section, which has been pushed aside in many, many other musicals. Uh, we have bassoons, we have uh, piccolos, we have uh, the full range in the saxophones, uh, in the clarinets, you know, many musicians are doubling. So the sounds that come out of the pit are very precise and things that we want people to hear. Mm -hmm. We want to hear the little subtleties throughout the evening's performance. So that in of itself is part of the reason in sound um, and people are because of technology people don't listen don't pay as close attention anymore so you have to stimulate them mm -hmm. but, but, the, the, the show ends uh, in respect to timing and the timing is almost identical every night then I suppose well no that's not true because mm -hmm. the although it's not a computer where you push one button <coughs> and you say okay I'll be back at 1030 to yeah. uh, <laughs> Everything is done, it's broken down into segments, uh, and you, ini you initiate a cue, and the, that cue might run five or six seconds. So if Susan Egan is a one beat or two beats late in starting a song and a light cue is supposed to start, the stage manager is still in control, and he calls that cue live. Mm -hmm. So although the control of the environment is technology, the, the unique thing about the theater, which will never go away, is that it's still in the hands of humans. I was hoping that you, I thought you would never say that. Never get to it. I just want to go back to, to, to Brendan's comment about Murray Abraham. I mean, I, mean, I think, I think what, what has to be differentiated here is the theater and Broadway. The fact is, um, um, I think what he's saying is that on Broadway, 
in some shows, um, which happen to be, for lots of reasons we can talk about, bigger than most theater over the rest of this country. And mind you, we're talking about 2% of the theater in this country. I mean, in every town of 25,000 people or more, there is live theater going on now, unlike there was 30 years ago. And so if, if, if Murray wants to act and not have any scenery, there's 98% of the theaters out there are a choice for him. <laughs> if he comes here, on the other hand, and indeed, and indeed wants to work in the Broadway theater, there is with it a kind of expectation, I think, that, that audiences bring from those towns that have 98% of the theater in this country to Broadway, which is to suggest that it damn well better be different or I'm not going to pay what I need to to come to New York. And, and it's not only that, I mean, and they want it to be different. Um, you can see wonderful plays and musicals and almost any actor on the stage from Schenectady to Spokane these days. And the fact is, in New York, um, Broadway is, uh, it seems to be an, aber an aberrational part of the th of theater in America. And uh, um, uh, it, is, it is that particular and singular aberration that we find here in New York that makes it either for some worth the money or not worth the money. And um, coming, you know, and, and so um, uh, it seems to me this particular Beauty and the Beast is a, a new musical um, for Broadway. And were it one for the Long Wharf Theater um, or the Guthrie, it might be a very different one. And for the Berkeley Rep in California, it would be a significantly different one than that. Um, <laughs> if you come here, you, you know, you, you want to you come to Broadway, you've damn well better play by the rules. I mean, the rules basically are that that show on the Berkeley Rep probably won't work here or last very long, and, and consequently... Um, no, in this you know, particular this, case, we were talking about Angels in America, which is an exceptionally complex uh, thing to put on. Yeah. And you couldn't get through the evening. It would be, it would be 4 o'clock right. in the morning as it was when the first... The, the, interesting, right. question, the, the interesting question about that, I mean, and I realize, you know, is that, is that at the Berkeley Rep, Angels in America had a wonderful run with no scenery whatsoever. And the fact is, is that the question for Angels in America might be, was the best, most secure place to hold the baby of that wonderful show in a circumstance which is so unbelievably volatile and speculative and that causes one to have angels coming through roofs as opposed to be referred to as opposed to out of hand and, and that's that's a choice producers make and then actors choose to do. Well, and not only in the small towns of America but we have all this nearly scenery less uh, Theater here in New York and off Broadway absolutely. and, and wherever else we happen to be going. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I want to. So he can act wherever he wants. No, he no, can. no question. He, he Brandon, can. you know, there's been a lot of focus today and in the media on Beauty and the Beast and how much it cost and how elaborate it is and all that. And, and, and it was expensive and it is very elaborate. But I also want to say that <clears throat> we made those decisions that, that that grew out of the script. It grew out of the music. The choices we made in 98% in of the cases were to tell the story the best way we knew how, to tell it in a Disney way, uh, and to illustrate the story. It was not, sometimes I feel like there's so much attention paid to this that people think, well, Disney set out to say, well, gee, whatever that show spent, we want to spend more. No. You know, whatever that show did that was a lot of scenery, we wanted to do, do more. That was never our intention. And so, while what Michael implied is true, there's more than one way to do Beauty and the Beast. What we have done is to tell the story in, uh, with our whole team in the best way we knew how. Yeah, and and look, look just, just, I'm sorry, but just, just to elaborate, the fact is that, that so much has been done to this particular Beauty and the Beast that has nothing to do with the physical production. I mean, there's more music that's new in this version than there is that's old from the movie. I mean, texturally, an amazing transformation has taken place 
in order to move what was on the screen now to the stage. Now, there's very little talk about it, but that's the case. It is indeed a new musical. It is not like Singing in the Rain or, mm -hmm. or um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or uh, Meet Me in St. Louis or even, frankly, more than all of those. The transformation textually has been massive. Um, to transform what was on the screen to the stage. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was surrounded by this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we, we started using the word adapt, and then once we hit Houston, all of a sudden we realized the word was transform as far as create anew and create something different. Beauty and the Beast is now at the palace, and, and, and we've gone all through that. Now what are you doing to sell tickets? We're, we're, what's, yeah, my what happens good. now? Yeah. And also, picking up on that, what is... For, for everybody, uh, what is the difference and the similarity between marketing and advertising? Because, you know... Well, hopefully they're going to be like this together, very soon. But they're, I mean, they're, they're two separate terms, well, and I think it's a... We, I mean... Uh, well, marketing hey, goes out and gets the customer, right? Advertising they, says, come and, well, and I see think it. Combination. One thing we have to sort of clear up is that we've never... Marketing in the theater is sort of an unfortunately a new thing yeah. mm -hmm. we need to be doing more of it and we're all learning as we go and that's why people like Marge are so important to us I and mean, uh, I I sometimes think that marketing means drive us crazy you know <laughs> like we have to go do that now it, it, it's yeah, thing I know I, I love you but you know there are days where I go no because you know I can write a press release and I can get the critics to come and I can get a picture in the newspaper and I can whatever but it's the other stuff that gets people in. I mean we don't know what actually gets people into a seat you know, I don't know and it's 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 us working together and to Marjorie, make them have to come. So it, that's what, well, you, just to embellish what marketing is, um, it's all of all of the techniques that go into selling your particular event, and that includes advertising, promotion, public relations, direct mail, telecommunications, group sales. All of that encompasses marketing. I think the best thing, you know, advertising, paid advertising. But if you want to go through the list on promotions, I mean, from the appearances and. Sure. For example, um, promotions really it's it's the development of a relationship with a third party, and through those uh, companies and their resources, they can use their techniques to advertise whatever particular promotion it is. And for example, the Walt Disney Company feels very strongly about literacy, so we took that as an opportunity to develop a literacy campaign in New York that tied in with Beauty and the Beast and was able to work with the New York Times who published a series of articles on the joy of reading and these appeared every day. Could I interrupt? How did that start? Mm. It started with meetings with the New York Times who wanted to work with us. And so who had the idea to say this, is, this would be good for literacy and let's see where we go with it? The Walt Disney Company felt it was important to advocate literacy as we do in the show. Then we had meetings with the New York Times who wanted to work with us on a particular promotion and it was a cooperative decision and a mutual decision that this would work best for the New York Times. And uh, they published this series of articles which further promoted Beauty and the Beast and tied in with the show in New York. And we also did similar campaigns with WWOR-TV who uh, produced a series of public service announcements and tied in with the New Jersey Board of Education. And uh, so both of those strengthened our, adv our advocation of literacy. And we worked with Bloomingdale's in the market who had exclusive shops with the Beauty and the Beast merchandise. They created a series of window displays and we had cast appearances and they conducted sweepstakes across the country. So all of this activity provided additional promotional exposure for the show. That sounds like promotional exposure, what you just said, and public relations and publicity. But what about the actual selling of the ticket? 
Did you go out to any different groups than the normal theater groups that uh, usually group sales? Did you go to different groups to get blocks of tickets to come to actually buy the tickets? That we, are there? we have a group sales agency Did that you handles use that. Did normal theater group sales? You didn't go to church groups theater or um, out of New Jersey or Connecticut and get well, we, we various... Well, we did a presentation um, before we went to Houston mm -hmm. where we actually had the actors come in and sing some songs for us and we Don put together this incredible slide presentation showing the costume sketches which are works of art and a little bit of the beast makeup process and we did about 20 minutes of some songs and we had we did it at uh, the Imperial at the Imperial Theater and there were you know 1500 people there who left and made their reservations for groups. I mean, so it was, a, it was calculated to do that. We wanted people to get a taste of it long before we came to New York, and the groups then went off and did their thing. So I, yes, we had. I also think that there's a picking up, because there's something that, Isabel, you touched on, but I think that people should know that one of the, uh, which was picked up on nicely, uh, understanding that the Disney company is promoting literacy, but I think it's picking up on the fact that the beauty is considered a weirdo because she reads, mm -hmm. and um, and I think I mean to to, to turn that around, it w was a lovely kind of you know, aggressive point of that, and I think I mean that that uh, all very well that Disney wanted to promote that, but it's really taking using that as a stepping stone. I mean the fact that that here is the beauty and it's considered the weirdo in the town because she actually reads books. Mm -hmm. Again, it naturally grows out of the script. Exactly. Yeah. That, and yeah. and in Houston, we uh, we were at a library. Uh, Michael Eisner came in and read to uh, some children at a Houston library and said, well, uh, he really put the stamp on it. He says, well, of course, it was very deliberate when we created Beauty and the Beast. We wanted to make a bell of the 90s. We wanted to make a contemporary bell. We wanted to make, and it was the reading that, that mm -hmm. is what created that character. Mm -hmm. So sure, to take that as a role model now and push it through. Mm -hmm. the, the, the great thing that I think Disney has to uh, offer the other Broadway producers is the whole role of synergy with our entire company. Um, it, it's just a key part that you won't find anyplace else, and I think everyone's starting to kind of understand how important it is. We have the ability, and other producers could do the same with other partners, to tie into various parts of the company. For instance, at Rockefeller Center, you'll see topiaries brought up from Walt Disney World to, you know, restate the name of uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the record company put out the cast album, and there's, you know, displays, promotions, advertisements around the cast album. The thing that really helped the literacy program come up is Hyperion and Disney Press, who gave 1,500 books to the uh, city of Houston, and then mm -hmm. is also doing a book offering to uh, the New York system. You're doing the same thing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so it's 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 pulling on those resources, uh, which I think are opening up the whole the, the Broadway marketing uh, sphere. What kind of an advance sale do you have here now? Advance sale? Uh, over seven million dollars. Right You're over seven million dollars right now. Going into how far ahead? We are on sale through September 4th. Yeah. 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 That's really just, just in general about marketing in the theater, I mean, what you're really talking about is sort of efficient information dissemination. Mm -hmm. It's not just about selling. I mean, selling tickets is the back end, but basically it's how you get information out there. And, and <clears throat> what I think is it's, it's what's expected of the theater without thinking about it, I think, is that what you do is you throw a lot of money at something. The fact is, if indeed the Broadway theater is this combination of art and commerce, necessarily you have to sell tickets in order to keep the art alive or to protect it. Um, the difference between Broadway art as product as opposed to toothpaste is the fact that there's only so many counters you can be on every week and that's all. So that 
you only can spend so much money per week on advertising, marketing of any kind, which is why the kind of synergy Don's talking about, or what Chris does, or what Marge does, um, is, is not, not only imaginative, but it's absolutely necessary, because what you can't do is buy the information dissemination network. You can't be, you can't compete with Budweiser or Crest for, for the opportunity to convey to people that this thing exists on Broadway, because you only are going to make, no matter how successful you are, so much money as every seat filled can make in eight performances a week. And that's all. And so there comes a point where justifying, we're going to go out and do everything we can, becomes very simple, whereas you can put toothpaste on every counter in every store across the country. Um, there's this one counter in this one city between these two blocks where all your toothpaste is, and oh, if it's good toothpaste, you've only got so much money to, 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 to spend. To sell. That's why Broadway is so hazardous for the producer who is only coming in with an, as an independent thing and, and can't, and word of mouth might survive, or cause a play or something to survive off Broadway, but word of mouth for, for six or eight million dollar yeah. musical. I've always felt it was an extraordinary silly thing for anybody yeah. to do with their money or their life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Putting mental illness aside for a minute. I mean, it's a really silly thing to do. But well, this was, in case of Roger Horshaw and, and uh, uh, you, yeah. this was the toy of his life. Absolutely. He always wanted to do that. Uh, that's he what he wanted. And, and what he had $110 million. And with his, he asked his family to vote. Should I make this right. fantastic gamble? And the children all said, go for it, pop. And he did. Right. And it worked. You and it never does. Well, in terms of marketing, and we touched it briefly before as far as the family musical and the Broadway musical, uh, I must say we learned a large lesson from Michael's experience with Tommy, where you began to articulate for us very early that there were two audiences, that with Tommy there was all of a sudden this new audience of, of old rock and rollers to bring to Broadway, as, as well as the theater audience. And, and that whole winning experience that he had, I think we took right over to Beauty and the Beast, where we realized there was the theater going public, and then there was also the new audience, which is the family audience. Yeah. And, and I must say, just, just, just in, yeah. informed in the way I think of Beauty and the Beast is in the family of family shows we've done before, Big River, Secret Garden, Into the Woods, which spoke to audiences of all ages. But I mean, I don't think of Beauty and the Beast as a kid show. I think of it as a show for a lot of people, including families. Um, and, and I think, meaning no disrespect, differently than Cats or even Joseph might be for families, that that Beauty and the Beast is in a fine family of shows that speak, that actually have texts and are about something. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and, and we struggled, I think, with those earlier shows, again, in, in which case much smaller, and I think with a, con with a potential constituency much smaller than Beauty and the Beast, um, to basically draw into the theater, not only traditional theater hours, but families, and God knows with all of the the um, uh, costs involved in sort of coming mm -hmm. with your children to see anything. Have you done any surveys on, on um, ages of families of, of the ticket buyers in, in the uh, theater for Beauty and the Beast? Is it, can you give us any medium surveys? Not yet. We haven't, we haven't done any uh, surveys uh, yet. I mean, it's we're, probably we're against the law. <laughs> no, no, no. Everything you else can is. ask. Yeah, they, don't no, have to, they don't have to answer. I know, that's yeah. right. But for instance, <laughs> with, with Secret Garden, 25% of our audience in our second year mm -hmm. were families. Mm -hmm. I felt great about that. I mean, that was... I know this is going to come up in our questions, so I might as well start it now. The ticket price. How did you determine how much it, the price of the ticket was? Is And who did that? Mm -hmm. uh, Michael and I did it with uh, the approval, ultimately, of Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. Uh, what is it based on? It's based on uh, two things. What's, what's things cost in New York? Well, I mean, what the uh, ticket 
prevailing ticket prices in New York and based on what our expenses are. Questions come up quite a bit. Can I Pe stop you for a minute that based on the prevailing ticket price in New York? Yes. Why is it always the same, almost, within $5 or so? Uh, the I straight play is always almost the same price. Uh, and Michael can answer that better. And the musical is within $5, the same price. That doesn't happen in, in a book or in a garment or whatever it might be. No, but I suppose the cost it happens. Of, of the product is there and there's a, a fair amount of return of profit and then based on that. So it's all different. Yeah, Why I, I think, is it? I, th I think that the answer to your question is probably not the one you want to hear. I mean, the fact is I think most people wish it could be higher. The fact is it is that price because no one's got the guts to charge what they ought to for that ticket. That's not to suggest that what you see when you get in is necessarily worth it. No, I don't want to hear But in terms of justifying, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you'll, you'll all decide whether that's the case. But, but the point is, but I think, but I think if, if anybody sort of on paper put down what you ought to be charging for what this cost and what it costs to run and what the cost was and what it could be, um, people, I think, are scared to death to charge that real number and so they cling to as best they can desperately a number which seems not as high as they think it ought to be but God knows it couldn't possibly be lower and then um, uh, remember this is affected not just by your expenses but the size of your theater so if you've got a large show in a house that's 1200 seats that makes it even trickier for you because the price that the cost of running there may be almost the same as if you were in a 1600 seat house so um, uh, look I mean I think I hate that ticket prices are so high, but I must say, um, uh, if it were any of our, if it was any of us sort of looking at the numbers, I think you would see that the, that it is as Brendan talks about. I mean, it makes coming here unbe unbelievably silly. I mean, you think about how many shows run, how many recoup, how many make money. I mean, it is it's it's a ridiculous thing for anybody to do with the money in the first place. And yeah. and, um, and I'm just glad from my standpoint that we didn't. Have a higher ticket price than any show in history because it would have made my life even. Now I know that uh, they're, they're talking about Showboat coming in here in the next season at seventy-five dollars a ticket, um, and uh, and I also know I think that that is very uh, uh, not often alluded to is um, uh, apart from the cost of uh, we talk about eleven uh, million plus for but uh, the cost of advertising has skyrocketed, hasn't it? I mean, that's that's one of the uh, the tough things. I mean, oh, everything's going up, and Everybody but I mean, up. beyond the physical production, isn't it true that an ad? What does a full page in the New York Times cost these days? Sixty? Is it fifty? How much? A full page? Yeah. 53. Yeah. Fifty yeah. thousand. Yeah, fifty-three, fifty-four thousand yeah. on Sunday, or with color. Yeah. Right. And now with color. And, and but, but I mean, what, what you're talking? Yeah. This is real, this is really interesting. It's always been sort of fun to me that that. The idea of the theater thinking about raising a ticket price of dollars on the front page of the Times. The New York Times raises their line rate, and it's if it's anywhere, it's buried, it's and buried. it's usually in a letter you receive somehow to do it. And somehow, they 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 just love. I mean, they salivate waiting for us to even thinking about you know thinking of what the, what the price of tickets is. And at the same time, I must say they contribute to to that cost. Every January, I mean, what needs to be talked about here too? I think is that. Is that in the in the conversations Bob and I had, and I know in Disney's in Disney's point of view, accessibility to the show was critical, and the, and the, and the, the the pull constantly was, how can we charge what we need to to keep it here, and how can we charge what we need to to get the people in who we want to be in while we're here, and so there are an awful lot of tickets in the theater that are not sixty five dollars, um, and how uh, does one know that? It's in it's 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 in. Uh, 
ABCs, as you call them. The average public does not know it. One one of the results of these uh, seminars, I constantly hear people say, oh, they're so wonderful and it's so good to hear a theater again. And I then say, well, do you go to the theater? Oh, I used to, but I can't afford it anymore. I would love to be able to go, but I can't afford it anymore. Well, we have have tickets that are $20. Uh, Every performance, as a matter of fact. How does one know about that? Well, it's... uh, if if somebody asks when they call uh, call the ticket agent, it's posted at the box office. Um, it's in our. And they also I mean, they go, so they go I mean, people know because they're gone. Well, it's in the advertising. <laughs> it is in the advertising. Yeah, it clearly is. Right. I don't. I'm going to look at your ad now. But, but but it is interesting. I mean, the question you pose: if we were the beef industry. <laughs> we would be taking ads all over the country talking about there really isn't as much cholesterol as you think there is or it doesn't do you any harm. And the fact is, we, we basically can't do that. And I must say, what you may be talking about is the industry needs to perhaps do that to make people understand that the, the, that the top number is only the number for a certain number of tickets, mm-hmm. and there are others. And, of course, Disney has worked out a number of both... both <laughs> Promotions for groups for tickets at no cost if they're empty seats and, f- and for discounts. Well, and so I, I want to get into that. that. We're going to have to stop now and take a break. And it's just so you can catch your breath and gird yourself for more questions for when we come back. So don't go far away. You can, you can stretch, you can move, you can do whatever you want. But come right back again and sit down and have questions ready. Thank you. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. This seminar is on the production, and the production is Beauty and the Beast, the exciting new show that's opened at the Palace Theatre. Gathered here, along with Brendan Gill and George White, are the people that made the show possible. The people that put their money where their show is, and <laughs> they're going to continue asking them how that money's being spent and what it does for the people that come to see Beauty and the Beast. Brendan, do you want to pick that up? Well, I was going to say, uh, starting from what Michael has said about what theater tickets ought to be, they ought to be higher even than they are. And very few of us out in the world have any recognition of the fact that this is, if, if it were a sensible business enterprise, it would have to be much more than that. But of course, part of the reasons, you gave many reasons, and it's really heartbreaking how inarticulate Michael is, but anyway, I never know anybody <laughs> to, to speak I'm, faster I'm, I'm sorry. and more usefully than that. But, but uh, part of the thing, of the difficulty, is not only that, you, that the, the counter is so small, but, but also there is no predicting uh, the length of time of anything, obviously, the gamble is so tremendous just in terms of temporariness along with yeah, everything yeah, else. It, and that's something that no businessman would dare to go into. No, I, the, I, I the, the, the toothpaste doesn't disappear. This uh, is an ephemeral yeah. thing that sort of is there for a moment. As some people say, the most valuable thing you have is the poster. The only thing that's left is sort of the poster <laughs> when it goes like yeah. that. So and no, your name on the marquee you got months it. later that's in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I want to pick up with Robert a little bit too, because uh, the uh, arrival on the Broadway <coughs> scene of Disney and the Disney Company uh, is probably the first time in I don't know how many uh, years or generations that there's been a brand new entity, and also it's 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 seemingly 
and it, the history has always been people go going back from the the, the pre-talkies. They they started on Broadway and went to Los Angeles and went into the film. And I think this may be the first of of a major film entity coming this other way. Uh, and I know that. Uh, there are plans to renovate. Matter of fact, I think the opening night party was originally going to go into the New Amsterdam. Um, I've got spies everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but but uh, this is a very, very exciting, or and possibly, in pretension, I've also heard a little bit of, of scary uh, potential of here is Disney suddenly coming in to Broadway, and there are a lot of... Uh, you know, there are certain people in dusty offices between 44th Street and 51st Street saying, oh, my Lord, what's going to happen when Disney hits uh, New York? But I'm, I, I wonder what other plans you have uh, for bringing other things in. I mean, and, and also, because it is such an ephemeral, uh, ephemeral thing about having, uh, uh, that it's not necessarily a money-making deal. Um, I didn't hear him say that. <laughs> no, I know exactly, exactly, and I, and I realize that that Jeffrey Katzenberg used to be an aide uh, an aide to Mayor Lindsay, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, so he has that New York um, background. Um, it's a kind of, uh, I guess, in my head, a quixotic idea, perhaps, of of Disney, which is making so much money in other areas, to come to Broadway. It's exciting. It's uh, daunting, somewhat. And what what do you have on the plate? Come on. Oh, my. Straight talk. Well, I, you brought up about ten subjects. Okay, I, yes. I, I don't know where Fair to enough. begin. Uh, if I go back to the first thing you brought up about uh, Disney being the first to come, I think there's been many film companies that have done things on Broadway, mostly, at least as well, far as I know, isn't it? mostly as investors. Yeah. If, if there's anything unique about what we're doing here, I, it, it is that we decided that this was going to be a Disney for all the, hopefully, a lot of good and very little bad, that it was going to be a Disney production. It was not going to be a case where we were just investors. And that actually was a philosophy taken by Michael Eisner uh, that he'd done that before in one of his previous uh, uh, companies, I believe at Paramount. But he wanted it to be our show and to be Disney, and we would succeed or we would fail, but it would be Disney. And I think that that has been the really unique thing about what we've done uh, in that regard. In terms of uh, whether Disney coming to Broadway is good or bad, well, well, from our point of view, we'd like everybody to think it's good. You know, some Let's people take it as a given that it's good. Yeah, I, I do, but I just thought there. I'd bring it up. Why not? You know, is, is, I realize this is not We just want to be part of the community. You know, some people have thought that we wanted to take over, and that's not the case at all. That's that's. Uh, we just want to what are your future plans? I think that's the important mm -hmm. thing. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh -huh. uh, we're looking at a, another production, uh, which we would hope to open at the New Amsterdam. The possibilities that we're talking when about. When do you think that might be? Uh, early 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about Aladdin or Little Mermaid or Mary Poppins. Those are the leading candidates, although we're looking at other properties as well. Will you do any plays that are not based on Disney characters or not based on? Uh, Yes, uh, probably not to begin with. Uh -huh. We still feel we have so much to learn 
that we want, think it's important to play from our strength at the moment, and that is to use the material that we're familiar with. But yes, definitely in the future. Uh, you are uh, open to new, new works yeah. and uh, the yes. development of new works. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Does that come out of your theater experience in California, being part of, of, of theater out there? You mean what? Uh, of, of wanting to create more theater in, in here in New York. I think I well, yes, but I think it just comes out of the nature of who the Walt, what the Walt Disney Company is. Mm -hmm. It's a creative, it's it's a creatively driven company. Uh, what we do is create product in in all of our areas. If you if you'll excuse the term product. Uh, we create stories, we create films, that's what we're about, that's what the whole company's about, mm -hmm. is doing that. And so, of course, it's natural for us to want to do new things uh, as soon as we feel we're ready or we find the right property. And I, you'll also be involved in that new international, or whatever they call that, with all the fiber optics and all the rest of it. Will you be also moving in that area? Because everybody in entertainment seems to be thinking about things like that. Well, I, I can only uh, quote Michael on that uh, and reiterate what he said in the, in the media, and that, that our interest is in creating the software, not in getting involved in the hardware. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. We just talked very briefly in, in, in the marketing on your merchandising, the, the merchandise that you have for sale. Does that is that a separate pot that that goes into all the, the shirts, the caps, and all of that, or is that put into the whole thing? Will that be Beauty and the Beast profits or Beauty and the Beast cost, or is it a separate organization? Well, it's on the merchandise. Well, it's both. <laughs> uh, the, the the merchandise is actually being handled by a division of our company called Consumer Products, uh, but w well, when we Take, undertake an enterprise like this, we look at it globally for all the for the benefit to the whole company. So, uh, yes, the benefit, the, whatever profit there might be, will be credited to Beauty and the Beast in, in that. But sense. and I would think from my from marketing point of view, I assume or why should I? Can you uh, buy Beauty and the Beast T-shirts at Disney World? Uh, you know, uh, Euro Disney, which then of course promotes. Beauty and the Beast back here when those tourists come to New York, or don't you yet? Or is that going to happen, or is that all part of the marketing plan? I don't know. Do yeah. you say? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, right? yeah, the, the, the CD, uh, the cast album rolls out. 26. 26. Uh, and uh, the T-shirt merchandise, et cetera, is being shipped out to various Disney locations, including Disney stores across the, the country. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, and that, of course, that helps market. Absolutely. I mean, there's also a sure. great new T-shirt sweatshirt that's available now to uh, in the lobby, and I guess in other places. And it says, "My first Broadway show, Beauty and the Beast for children," which is great. Oh, that is wonderful. promoting two things. We have for our students says, "Hooray, hooray!" We went to a Broadway show. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Hooray, hooray, hooray! We went to Beauty and the Beast. We'll work on the rhyme, but. We also have a, a thing that uh, we started out at first to be a gimmick for our critics and our VIP press when we first came to New York is we created a hat that simply said, Beast. Um, that was a joke <laughs> to the people that, you know, say what you will, we have the joke, we're giving you a hat. And, it's a beast <laughs> and now they're on sale everywhere. And so you see children and people wearing Beast hats. And some very uh, uh, strong-willed ladies have been wearing beauty hats. And I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So, that's great. There's, a, there's another product which I... I and you test me if this is new, new, but uh, the Anne Hope Ward's costume designs r really became a pivotal 
part in the creation of the show as we redefined the mythology and rewrote the, the script in that regard. And, uh, and it was her work that did that. The designs themselves really became wonderful works of art and will be uh, lithographed in limited series, uh, signed by Anne and sold through Disney Art Editions, mm -hmm. um, you know, like galleries you know, throughout the country, too. Well, now, there's, there's also, and that goes back to the, to the show for a moment, too. Uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Potts, 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 and, and uh, Lumens, is it? Lumiere. Lumiere. All of those people, wasn't there a point in the evolution of the show where, and wasn't there a lot of discussion about whether or not they should be dressed that way? Would you talk a little bit about that? Because that was a kind of an interesting decision, I think, of which way to go yeah. with that. We, you know, we started uh, like January of 91. By the time we got to April of 91, Michael said, or 92, 92, Michael said, uh, tell me how you're going to treat the objects. You know, just what, you know, the rest of the story, we can combine 54 scenes into, you know, maybe 13. We, you know, we, we, we lose the horse Philippe, you know, uh, for all the practical <laughs> reasons. Uh, you know, but how are we going to treat the objects? And, uh, and it was Rob Roth, the director, uh, teamed up with Ann Holward and Matt West, the choreographer. Uh, Ann was brought in because she had previously done the two things that we had to do. Number one, uh, recreate a fairy tale in a theatrical term, which she did in under the uh, into the woods, and also pull off an existing um, artwork, which she did in Sunny in the Park. Mm -hmm. um, with that type of background and working with Rob, they abandoned the idea of puppets. They abandoned the idea of uh, projections. They abandoned the holograms. Uh, just uh, you know, every opportunity that was out for us, and. Uh, and as Anne kind of looked at all of the different ways you could paint the uh, Lumiere or create Lumiere as a, as, a, as a costume which an actor could perform in as an actor, uh, they realized that there was a merit to the whole list of it, and that's when the mythology changed in the show, which justifies how the characters are, are, are realized on stage. Because originally they weren't going to be that. They were just characters, right? Or they weren't going to be dressed in, like in, in the candelabra. Yeah, in, in, in the film you only know them as a, a talking candlestick. At mm -hmm. the end of the show, it's kind of a surprise that they are uh, the servants in the castle. Here the mythology has changed so that you know that they are the servants who are under the spell, who are now gradually changing into these objects. Yeah. Which which brings up another thing that uh, someone, maybe Jeremy, you're the person who talked about, which are the special effects again, because they're wonderful ones. Uh, you know, and uh, who did that? How was that put together? And you don't have to reveal this if you don't want to, but how in the end when he transforms back into the prince? He won't reveal it. He won't reveal it. <laughs> okay, Not well. while I'm sitting here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, all right. But it's anyway. Magic. Uh, it's, well, it's magic. magic. Okay. Well, there it's we Disney are. Magic. Yeah, it's <laughs> Disney magic. All right. Well, well was there a was there a, a was there a, a Doug Hemmings type person that created these things for you? A magician, yes. really? We work with two illusionists uh, who work with the director, myself, the scenic designer, into figuring out how we could get the character onto the stage, make the go to the battle from the battle scene into the transformation scene, as we call it. Uh, and have him transform in front of your eyes, which he actually does. And is that the director's idea to have the illusionist work with him? Whose idea was that? Because that's unique. And 
Well, I think it was a combination of the Disney company, myself, and the director in that mm -hmm. uh, some of the things we tried to accomplish here were different from other Broadway shows, and uh, those resources It's a very are difficult part. task of directing. You did a wonderful job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are wonderful resources available because mm -hmm. of Disney, and, and we tapped into them wherever we could. Also on the pyrotechnics, we, we used a, an extremely talented pyrotechnic designer who mm -hmm. created all that flash and sparkle and actually did R&D for over a year in the in, uh, Enchantress transformation at the beginning of the show when we transform the prince into the beast, mm -hmm. the enchantress throws a fireball, and in order to develop that fireball, it was a full year of R&D to do that. Good. And, yeah, it's it's a, and it's patented as well. That's a good businessman. Yeah, I know that R&D stands for research and development. You can't fool me. <laughs> and that fireball came from Nolan Ryan. You don't often hear mm -hmm. that on Broadway. Right. No, it's true. Mm -hmm. No, so... Well, it's, it's wonderful, and I think uh, certainly the, the idea of, at the end, uh, w however that's done, to have the, the, uh, the beast spinning in the air and, and transforming it for you, it's just, it's just terrific. I mean, one can sort of understand how uh, the other things sort of work, but that one is really just terrific. And uh, uh, for magic buffs, uh, it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's Despite it's, Michael's statement that uh, the ticket price should be more if you were really putting it all down on paper. <laughs> At the break, I had uh, a couple of people said, I, I do not, I can't get those 15 and $20 seats. I don't know where they are. And I'd like to know what the percentage is that you have. What, and let's take this show in particular. What percentage of seats are there in the $20 area? Because that, that's the know, biggest to, thing. I know that the answer is that you're sold out. That if the show is good and they want to see it and they, they'll come to see it no matter what the price is. But that's not really the, the, the story of Broadway theater. And that's not going to make Broadway theater continue to be what it is if we don't think about getting more people in more theater goes into it, not just those who can afford it for a birthday or for a special occasion. So if there are more seats that are available at an available price, how do we know about it? What percentage of them have each theater? Hmm? That I mean, usually, so they, 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 those seats go first. first, first the the they're known enough about again. so that they all sell. And, and they're not just 20 and 65, they're 20 and 30 and 35 and 45 and whatever. So there is this range that goes from here to here, um, and, uh, and they vary from show to show. I mean, on Tommy, we have 200 seats in the balcony for $20. Um, and, uh, and they go before anything goes. Do I mean, they're just gone. Do you have any student rush tickets? No. Over there? You don't. Does anybody? Do you, you, no. Not at all. Uh -huh. Would that but not be a good idea? It's then? very hard to do. I mean, I, I can't understand that as, as things get more expensive, really, the New York Times, the, an actor's contract, um, uh, whatever, um, the theater's capacity doesn't expand. The 600-seat theater remains 600 seats from 1950 to 1990. And um, uh, there are certain consequences from the... the 
the fact that, the, that you know that one doesn't move with the other, um, or the idea that you'll you know put it in three theaters as David Merrick tried to do once in forty seconds. Yeah, it's it's sort of too bad though that the that uh, the hit shows. I mean, this is it's, and I've uh, Brendan alluded to the fact that. Uh, we are major Wall Street figures here at one point. Um, but it would occur to me that if you had a, a, a hot show, a major show, that in a funny way, that would allow the ticket prices to drop it, 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 because of what it's supply and demand. I realize the other way, but I mean, but it would be interesting because you're, you would be able to sell out and could make money, you could drop because, you know what I'm saying, whereas in reality, and then a show that was just marginally making it actually should charge more to make it. I, it, it doesn't work that way because you're dealing with the human equation, yeah. but it's interesting well, if you're making a lot of money, why the show couldn't. And, and there, is, there is a way to make ticket prices theoretically less. You could do less. I mean, I think about Guys and Dolls. The fact yeah. is we only had to have 16 musicians, and I suppose if there were no minimums, we could only have a synthesizer, and then it might be a show none of us would want to see, but yeah. it might cause the <laughs> ticket to be a little less. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that, that really is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, the question is, though, if you're the custodian of this good work. But there are shows where there is yeah. only a synthesizer, and the, the ticket price is not that less. Well, but I don't know them. I was going to ask. We're ready to go to questions. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you it's off. A, it's fine. so many questions. I must say, it was nice to have a uh, $42 ticket in Houston where we had a 3,000-seat house. Yeah. You know, it really is the facilities that are, that are there on Broadway. And that what was the ticket price in Houston? $42, mm -hmm. and there was a 3,000-seat house that was also sold out six weeks, you know, and, and that, well, that was the equation that worked. Well, isn't, that, isn't Disney going to, didn't I hear a rumor that Disney was going to use the Met? Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> no, seriously. Wasn't there some talk about Disney going there? What parties do you go to? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's spies everywhere. I want to thank the panel today. This is an exceptional, um, very inspiring to hear the backstage process of this. My name is Margot Evan, and I, my question for the entire panel would be, I'm also an actress, would be how involved you get in the actual process of the creative project. Thank you. As producers, you mean? Yeah, yes. Bob, why don't you start? Well, it, it, it depends. All of us have different roles, and all of us are uh, involved to varying degrees. Uh, I've, I've been very involved in it. Uh, it's, not, it's not my primary function. Just speaking for myself as the producer, I'm supposed to oversee the business and the creative, but just the creative is not my primary function. I also... Uh, uh, the primary creative staff, of course, is the director, the choreographer, and, and, and so on, and, and they need to take the lead. In our case, uh, as producer, also for Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, they would come in quite often and critique the show uh, and give us uh, notes, give us their comments, so we've been very involved in every part of the production, and each of these people here are, are involved to varying degrees. John, you were going to speak to that, maybe. Well, what was more interesting, at speaking to the actress, was uh, the role that the actress played in creating these roles, you know, which, as opposed to the producers involved in the creative, creative process. I mean, what Terry Mann did with the Beast, how Susan Egan really did define Belle, you know, how the objects came to life, and the and the actors brought them to life from the very first reading, when we just sat down and read the script. There were there were quite a few of those performers that we just went. Oh my! That's the answer. My God, that's what Cogsworth is. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we'll put it back on the actors. Who's... 
Yes. You know. It was mentioned that um, a few changes were made during the production in Houston run. Did that continue uh, during the New York previews? And, and what were some of those changes in the production? Uh, ooh, yeah, uh, yes, it continued during the previews. Uh, in, in Houston, it was an awful lot of how to get from one scene to the other and the, you know, compressing those scene changes and uh, elimination of some plot points because what worked in the film just doesn't, didn't work on stage. And um, you, you may remember from the film, uh, Chip is a stowaway, and Chip goes back to... Have you all seen the film? Good. Uh, the, the, <laughs> uh, Chip goes back, and Chip helps uh, Belle and uh, Maurice get out of the cellar because, you know, it's a whole elaborate scheme, uh, which we had first worked out, and, it, you know, it just didn't further the story, didn't carry it off, and was excised from the show down in Houston. Probably one of the biggest things, too, is the way the beast looked in Houston versus the way he looks now. I mean, I have, How is that? Tell, tell I, I have sort of photos from every step along the way, and I can't use half of them now because the beast <laughs> was... Well, the way the way beast was originally designed, he was much furrier and much snarlier and toothier, and he had trouble singing through it and couldn't really see him. And the, 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 the fact remains, what the, the best thing I think that we've done is let the actors be actors. They're not inside cardboard boxes. They're not wearing foam heads. They are actors. And we stripped away, or they stripped away, the geniuses who did it, stripped away some of the things. So you actually see the man underneath. Is it, uh, it's sort of the evolution yeah. of coming out of a cartoon or an animation right. to uh, yeah. that part of the becoming it, a Broadway right. show as opposed right. to a cartoon that we're talking about. Right. Really. I mean, for the Beast, we actually built an exoskeleton originally really? that worked just like uh, a Beast's spine would work. But it was actually, and we spent substantial monies doing that. <laughs> to have it move as he moved, to be part of his, it was attached to his shoulders, his arms. It could snarl and ruffle up. Wow. And, and we found that it just didn't uh, enhance the character. It, it, was, yeah. it was not. What's the difference and, did you find in, in the response to the New York audience in previews as to a Houston audience? <laughs> do, do, do you have to. Do your timing, any timing differently? Uh, well, we were uh, actually quite concerned about that um, because we knew the show worked. We got the show to it, so it worked very well in, in Houston. And uh, because we had never done this in New York, we were quite concerned about what the response might be. And, um, boy, this is a question like, have you stopped beating your wife lately? <laughs> uh, the, uh, if nobody in Houston is watching... <laughs> I will say that the New York audience uh, has a, a, a quicker, they're quicker to understand the jokes. There's a level of sophistication about things uh, that we're doing that they pick up on uh, more quickly. But to our uh, happy su surprise, the, most of the humor, most of the jokes, the story worked in New York as well as it did in Houston. My name is Pearl Levinson. Can you tell me how long the show would have to run in order to realize a profit over the investment? Uh, too long. <laughs> you're too, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> too long because the ticket prices are too low. <laughs> um, uh, if it, it depends on, on what kind of business we do. Uh, it's kind of a, a, uh, an equation that you'd have to figure out. If, if the show sells out, uh, very heavily, about a year, about the same as any other large musical. We have time for just one more question. 
What is your question? Oh, hi. My name is Derica Cody. Uh, my question is, uh, who in the panel has a theatrical background, you know, who started in theater, and would you tell us a little bit about it and how you went through changes? We don't have time for that, but I think you've all raised your hands. Almost every one of you have yeah. theater background. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. You mean as opposed to being a lawyer and giving it up and deciding <laughs> to sort of do something as silly as this? Yeah. Is anyone yeah. a lawyer on this? Yeah. <laughs> This has no. really been a wonderful panel, and, and, and you've been so so willing to share your knowledge of, uh, that I'm, I'm so grateful to everything that you, you do here, and I hope that you stay in New York, and I hope that we make you happy in New York, and I hope that Disney becomes a force in New York theater because we need as much as we can in live theater to be part of New York City. This panel discussion of, of working in the wings, seminars, and working in the theater has been on production. And it's Disney World who has brought, uh, these are the producers and the staff of Beauty and the Beast, which is an exciting play that has come to New York. This is what one of the all-year-round programs of the American Theater Wing, the programs that have a commitment to the community through theater. And we bring live theater to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. Uh, we have an introduction to Broadway program that brings students to their first Broadway show. We have a ticket program in order to have students of the theater able to see Broadway theater. And uh, very shortly, I'll be knocking on the doors of these people to beg tickets for our program. Thank you very much. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in New York City.